Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Evening. Hello. Oh. I don't hear anybody applauding out there. What's going on? <laughs> what happened to the applause? I tried. I put it. I put it on. It never <laughs> works. Every time we try it. <laughs> we were talking about that before the show started, and Maven had said she was going to try for that I'm applause. Try it anyway. I could hear okay. it. <laughs> it's no we can do it ourselves. We'll make our own applause. They're, Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Please. Audience. That's enough, really. Um, <laughs> By the, the more perceptive amongst you will notice that Bill Reel is not represented on the screen this evening. It is instead the amazing Maven. Hello. Now I am I'm hearing sure the applause. Okay. <laughs> you are? I, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's so loud I can hear it from my underground bunker. <laughs> nice. Where's Bill? Uh, Bill's not with us tonight. Um, the backyard professor says he's been kidnapped by demons. <laughs> that works. He's been kidnapped. Well, he, okay. Well, he's not going to be here tonight and he's not going to be here next week. So it's just uh, you and me and while the cat's away, the mice will play. That is true. Without Bill here, we're going to go ahead and announce a contest. <laughs> yes. Let's make it about Bill. Yeah. I don't the know. Nickname he... for Bill. No, I'm actually, that's not the contest. Go ahead. You, you take this over. This okay. is your idea. This is a great idea. I'll stop. Go ahead. Okay, so the 100th episode is coming up, and so we want to do a t-shirt design. And uh, since none of us feel particularly, um, I guess, adept at that, we wanted to go ahead and open it up and make it a contest for our viewers. So I think we're going to try to shoot for two weeks to take submissions in, and then once we get them all, we will post them somewhere publicly, either on Facebook or some other platform where they can be voted on. And then the winning design will be revealed on the 100th episode. So, yeah, really? um, that is the plan. So, yeah, for the next two weeks. And I think it would be just um, the normal uh, Mormon discussions podcast email, which I don't have in front of me right now. But I can put it on and put it in the chat um, maybe after we introduce our guest so so i want to keep him in the green room a little bit longer because he's okay. largely the reason that we get started late um <laughs> <laughs> but no but this this contest this is specific to mormonism live is that correct yeah yeah it's not the like mormon discussions general brand it's it's because it's certainly it, not the backyard professor 100th episode yeah, yes this is not about comes. the backyard professor sorry carrie <laughs> Although I understand that there are certain fans of his show, and I'm one of them, who's looking forward to getting some kind of T-shirt that has somewhere written on it the words, yeah, baby, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I did that very well. He does it much better. That would be good. He does have that phrase, right? Oh, you my gosh. He was just I think he was just calling me. I was just getting a call from Boise, Idaho. Oh, it's that's either funny. Carrie or somebody in prison. Could be the same <laughs> person. I'm not sure. Anyway. Sorry, Carrie. <laughs> Don't talk to the cops if you if you're calling for legal advice. 
He's got the yeah, baby in the chat here. Maybe you have a right to remain silent. I advise you to exercise it. (laughs) Okay, so we do have somebody who's very, very important. We've got, I think, the world's most renowned uh, scholar and expert on Joseph Smith, certainly, especially within the 1920s. Uh, and the 1930s. I know he's working on the night. I said 19, 1820s. <laughs> he's got 1830s covered in a publication coming up in 1840s. He's working on. So this gentleman knows Joseph Smith, and especially during the time period we're going to be interested in tonight, because we're talking about the 1820s. We're talking about the vi- the visits, the yearly visits of Moroni or whoever that character was who could only appear one evening of the year at one location to give information to Joseph Smith. And that person that we have on the show is Dan Vogel. Let's bring him on with a big hand, everybody. Whoa. Hello, Hello everybody. It's looking dark there. It's dark here and it's raining and you might hear some thunder and hopefully you don't lose connection with me. Yeah. Yes, there's a thunderstorm warning <laughs> for Salt Lake. And I was thinking about that earlier. Like, oh, I really? hope I don't drop out. So if something happens here, it might affect both of us. So, um, okay. so our weather's great here, so I'll carry solo. on. I'll carry on in your absence. I've got the <laughs> yeah. slides. Right. Except I don't have them. You have them, don't you, maybe? Okay, so Dan is here. We're, we're, things are lining up. The planets are aligning this <laughs> evening because tonight is the, um, well, I, it's pretty darn close to the equinox. Is that technically tomorrow? It's after midnight yes. tonight. So this evening is not, but once you hit midnight, bam, you're into enchanted time. You're into the fall or the autumnal equinox. And we'll talk about that because tonight is, I believe, the 195th anniversary of Joseph Smith bringing the plates home from the hill. Well, he didn't actually bring him home from the hill, but he did bring him. Uh, I'll let you explain it. They didn't quite make it home for a while. Yeah, we might uh, get to that part of the story eventually. I hope uh, so. It's, it's also the 199th anniversary of when Joseph Smith claimed to have learned about the plates from the angel in 1823. Oh, yes. Yeah, so we'll be getting to the, the, what, the bicentennial of that event next year. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell now, us? Yes. Now, before we get on to Joseph Smith, I got a little surprise for our film because we're going to talk about Houdini. Oh, I love Houdini. By the way, we're yeah. all wearing black. We're all wearing black tonight in honor of I'm Joseph black. Smith's visit. You're wearing black. Mine I'm is, wearing uh, black. Yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, sig- signature Books. Signature Books Book Club. Oh, that's very nice. It looks like it has uh, some kind of a gecko on it. Oh, it's an SB. Signature oh, okay. Books Book Club. It looked like a so, salamander to me. We're all wearing black tonight because this is coordinated in advance because that's what we understand Joseph Smith wore to the Hill 195 yeah. years ago tonight. He had to wear black and ride a black horse. Yes. Well, we'll have nice. to fight it out as to who's going to be Joseph and who's going to be the horse in this podcast. <laughs> I know what part of the horse I am. <laughs> so what? What so is this about Houdini? Houdini. Yes, yes I love Houdini. One, it's the one hundred and tenth anniversary of when he introduced his water torture cell over here on the uh, left. Really? In Berlin oh. on September twenty first. 
1912. And this is this day, every every um, you know 21st of September is International Escape Ologist Day. I had no idea. <laughs> I think I've actually seen that uh, that water torture cell in person. I know we had several oh, of them. Really? I've seen at least one of them. Yeah, earlier this year. Yeah, they, they, they it's around still. Um, as a you know kind of a, a antique <laughs> but um so the, the other photographs on this thing is over here on the far right you'll see do spirits return houdini says no and proves it he was such a killjoy <laughs> so and in, in the middle on the top you'll see him that's houdini sitting there at the desk in the uh, um, Capitol building, I guess, somewhere in one of the uh, rooms. It's a subcommittee that was considering a resolution, 8989, banning fortune telling in Washington, D.C. Uh, Coolidge was the president at the time, but Florence Harding, mm -hmm. wife of the previous president, re of the previous. President, uh, President uh, Warren Harding, she used to consult a psychic medium in the White House. Called, her name was Madame Marcia, who eventually wrote her own expose of herself. <laughs> when an, <laughs> when an, extro, an astrologer ruled the White House was the title. When an astro, astrologer ruled the White House. So she claimed that she played a pivotal role in the Harding administration. So this is what got Houdini's ire up because he knew that it was all a bunch of hokey and tricks and things. And uh, he didn't want a congressman consulting mediums in the district of Co uh, uh, Columbia regarding, you know, they would call up the ghost of uh, uh, the favorite was Abraham Lincoln. And they would ask advice of this Abraham Lincoln's ghost on what, how they should vote on things. I mean, is that the way you want the country to run? So, well, Houdini I mean, could it to, be any worse? Houdini to the rescue. Could, you know? it, could Abraham Lincoln give us any worse advice than what we're getting nowadays? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but this is this is something that's happened uh, since then. I, I remember Nancy Reagan. There were stories about her consulting an astrologer to decide when uh, yeah. her husband should take trips and when he shouldn't yeah. take trips, right? And then there was exactly also something right. about um, and Hillary Clinton um, talking, maybe she was speaking euphemistically, I don't know, but talking with, um, oh, FDR's wife, and now I'm blanking on her first name. Her Eleanor? last name was Roosevelt. Eleanor. Eleanor, thank you. <laughs> yeah, remember that one? Talking with Eleanor Roosevelt. So this is something that's not just for a hundred years ago, but that's fascinating. I mean, this is going on even now. Just yeah, maybe people aren't being so open about it. So Houdini, uh, behind him, if you see that picture in the Senate or uh, Senate room, I would say that's one of the senators that actually consulted mediums sitting right next to him. And Houdini would wave this uh, envelope with ten thousand dollars in it for any medium that can produce some kind of psychic phenomenon. If, and the room would go dead silent. So, um, 
So the mediums were all sitting behind him there trying to, you know, give him a hard time and making snide comments during the whole time. And uh, there were fights. One of the medium's husbands stood up and almost punched Houdini in the face. Wow. I wouldn't (laughs) want to try and punch Houdini in the face. He's pretty wiry. He's pretty strong. Yeah. So this is a perfect segue into our subject. If I were going to punch Houdini, I think it'd be in the abdomen when he's not looking. <laughs> Good one. Good one, RFM. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, we're going to make yeah. our way to Joseph Smith at some point. I, I feel certain yeah. of this. Yeah, right now. That it's the 100th anniversary of National Escape Ologist Ologist Day. Day. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Joseph Smith's annual visits to the Manchester Hill, 22nd of September. 1823 to 1827. He's trying to liberate and, those plates from the hill. It's a natural segue yeah. from Houdini. So you like this little uh, uh, picture I made of uh, people out there? Here's the, the guys working the rod in the front there, you know. I thought the, either he was working the, the rod or he was just glad to see me. <laughs> okay, May West. Um, but this is a great background. This is the only thing I had any involvement in was asking you to come up with a spooky background. That was all my involvement. You came up with this, and I love it. It's great. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, we'll get on to our show. Oh, well, one thing I need to mention before we change the picture here is that we're going to be talking about the occult. And the, the occult should not be confused with Satanism, which is commonly done. No, that okay. really pisses uh, Satan off. He considers it a victory for Mormon. <laughs> I don't even know what this means at this point. Please continue. So, so the occult means it, it involves, or oh, do you hear thunder? I hear the thunder. I told you it was going to be spooky. Oh my gosh! Uh, <laughs> involving or relating to the supernatural, mystical, or magical powers or phenomena. The term occult comes from the Latin word occultus, meaning clandestine, hidden, or secret, and refers to knowledge of the hidden, or nowadays we might say, knowledge of the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. all. Nothing about Satan. No, there's no Satan. There is no Satan <laughs> in a cult. And there's no I in team. You just okay. keep trying to get through these slides, and I'll keep trying to obstruct you at every turn. No, it's great. Great. Um, so there's, if you can change the slide there. Ah, oh, here we go. I know this Benjamin guy. Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, 1729, made a very interesting statement. The astrologers with whom the country swarms at this time are often consulted about the cr- critical times for digging. The methods for laying the spirit and the like whimsies. Wait a second. Which re- I'm sorry. <laughs> the methods of doing what to the spirit? Laying the spirits. That's just like controlling the spirits to keep them away from the treasure. Okay, if you say so. Usually involves a magic circle. Yes, and the like whimsies, like laying the spirit. Go ahead. Yeah, speaking incantations while you're circling it. And drawing it with a rusty sword and having a stuffed toad and things like that. <laughs> those are whimsical. Don't you think those are whimsical? It's whimsical. Are. I love the word. 
So do I. But it's a it's typically Benjamin Franklin vocabulary, um, which renders them very necessary and very much caressed by the poor, deluded money hunters. So they like astrologers. Money hunters like astrologers, and they pay attention to you know critical uh, times, uh, astrological things. Yes, critical times for digging, right? Stars, the moons, yeah, yeah. So. Below that, we have a quote from the Smith's neighbor, near neighbor, William Stafford, said Joseph Smith Sr. and Jr. claimed at certain times these treasures could be obtained very easily. At others, the obtaining of them was difficult. The facility of approaching them depended in a great measure on the state of the moon. New Mm. moon and Good Friday I believe, were regarded as the most favorable times for obtaining these treasures. That's very interesting. Of course, he says at certain times, these treasures could be obtained very easily. Judging from their track record, I I guess they didn't go out on any of those times. Well, I guess they anticipated it would be easier, but really. uh, Now you're talking about the state of the moon. I think the result was the same regardless. I think so, too. By the way, can you explain for our audience what new moon means new moon we'll be seeing that in a while but the new moon is no moon right it's the, the opposite of full moon you know yes so there's no the moon is down the whole night it's not anywhere in the sky this is going to be an unusually dark night when there's a new moon correct new moon and dangerous to be about walking in the rocks and things oh yeah <laughs> just physically not to mention spiritually i think yes. it it could, the moon could be up in the sky. It's not that it gets on the other side of the world, but just it's completely blocked by the earth from getting the sun's rays. I think Isn't that, that right? would be an eclipse. No, no, not an eclipse. A new moon is just because it's just the reflection of the sun is why we get the different stages, right? Or yeah, am I totally so, messing that up? Well, it's okay because when it's a full moon, <laughs> yeah. it's up from sundown to sun up the entire night. And when it's a new moon, my understanding is it's the opposite. It's the other side of the earth. That's why there's no moon in the sky. I don't I don't think so. Right. Am, I, am I completely wrong on this? We're going to let what's Dan gonna, settle okay. this way. Yeah, well, what's going to block the light? Well, you know, I mean. It's something really big like the earth. Um, but, I mean, RFM's talking about where it is like, in the sky as far as, like, would we no, be able to see it or not? And I'm saying a new moon can be in the no. sky, but it's not got any reflection of the sun on it. And so it's completely Because the dark. earth is in the way. Yeah. And that's not an but eclipse. Have you seen the moon during the daytime? Right. Yeah? Yeah. Well, the people on the other side of the earth don't see it. Right. But that doesn't mean it's a new moon for them. Yes, it does. It does? Okay. <laughs> well, when, right, it's a full, to- when it's a full moon here, <laughs> then on the Antipodes, it's a new moon. Boy, we're never going to get through this. We're going to get bogged okay, down. Here we go. Yeah, we'll so, now, I, yeah. We'll just agree. We'll just agree that it's okay, dark. Maven. We got we got tougher questions ahead. Yeah. Um. So, we'll just agree. I, it's I've dark got people out. in the audience telling me I'm right, and and that's good enough for me. Next. Okay. Oh, next slide. Sure, next RFM slide. Right. Logan says RFM is right, and that's good enough for me. The guy's a math whiz. <laughs> Maven's right. Camille, what the heck? Okay, she's a okay. Plan. See, okay, I'm started. sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Dan. We have a big controversy going, and we haven't even got to the subject. You made up that so, account, didn't you, Maven? 
Yeah, some apologists out there. <laughs> no, I believe this is the Camille that's been um, on Mormon Stories that was the um, uh, assistant to a general authority. I feel like that gives her more say. <laughs> Wasn't she at the Queen's funeral recently? Oh, no, that's Camilla. Never mind. <laughs> All right, here's my buddy. Dan, go ahead. Mike Quinn. Mike Quinn. Mike Quinn. We're going to talk about Mike Quinn and his great book, Early Mormonism and the Magic World View. So this is believing historian, Mike Quinn. He says, Smith began praying late Sunday night on the 21st of September, 1823, to commune with some kind of messenger. And that phrase comes from the 1835 messenger and advocate, the history Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery wrote together. Anyway, astrological guides specified that Sunday night was the only night of the week ruled by Jupiter. Jupiter, Smith's ruling planet, was the most astrological symbol on his family's golden layman or holiness to the Lord parchment for summoning a good spirit. Okay, so okay. it's a good spirit. It's a good spirit. And so on the left-hand side is Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman. And on the very uh, left side, you'll That's see... That's a nine o'clock position, right? At, at, at the nine o'clock position is the a letter looks sort of like a four. Well, yeah. that's the Jupiter sign. Okay, and, so there's the Jupiter sign on Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman. And over and here on the layman. On the golden layman. And that's a fancy uh, word for a parchment, a magical parchment. Is that correct? Yeah, layman is the name for prince. Is that the name of somebody in the Book of Mormon too? Yeah. Okay, it sounds familiar. I, I have to ask, is it called the Holy List to the Lord Parchment before, or is that a, you know, like no, a, a no, that's, that's that's actually written on there. So on the three sides, on the two sides and the top, it actually says you can't, we'll, we'll, we'll get a closer look. Uh, tur turn it to the next picture. Okay. So see on the sides, it okay. says Holiness to the mm -hmm. Lord. And then you can see the kind of four shaped at the top also written in gold this has been touched up from a black and white actually we wish i wish i had a actual photograph i've tried to get an actual photograph from various sources but not lucky so far anyway dan can you tell us uh just briefly thumbnail this uh provenance of this layman oh yes this this is the Smith family parchment. There's three parchments and they folded them up. You can see if you look really close, they folded them up and put them in a little pouch and it had like a little strap to carry around the neck. So it's like on your chest sort of. And then um, this one's called Holiness to the Lord. They have another one, Peter bind them uh, parchment, but um, they would carry these uh, and it was, it was handed down in the Smith family in the Hiram Smith family and Eldred G. Smith was the last one to actually own him. I think it's been turned over to the church now. And um, so this was handed down in the Hiram Smith family. So it has a provenance. Okay. And this is something that Joseph Smith or his family would have had back in the 1820s during the treasure digging days. Yes. since the it, Quinn uh, goes into va a vast d detail to show that certain parts of this were copied out of uh, 
occult books, magic books, folk magic books, occult books, white magic, white magic, not black magic books, Christian magic, you might want to call them because they usually believe in, in well, holiness to the Lord. They're not holiness to Satan or anything. Right. So, and can I just but, mention that? Oh, sorry. Megan, did you have something? My understanding was that with, with this kind of stuff, it was seen almost like scientific. That, you know, that it yeah, wasn't oh, yeah. really seen as paranormal, but that they were exploring and learning about the world, you know, in, in the same way that a naturalist might be studying you know, bugs and things like that, that this, that these were all kind of in the same category to them. Yeah. So, uh, pseudoscientifically, yes. They, right. they viewed here. it as being scientific, that it, that it was a formula and it worked. It wasn't like in religion, faith, God, right. God does it or doesn't do it. This is like, if you do it just right, uh, the spirits have to come. So. Yes, the power of Christ compels you. And by the way, I do notice that here on this parchment, that right yeah. here with this uh, design, right in the middle, yeah, and then to the right on the three o'clock position, it looks like we have the three crosses from Golgotha well, to give it a distinctly Christian flavor. Yes, exactly. Good point. Now, this these two wheels that you see in the, in the corners, there's two round figures with various symbols in them. That is copied from magic books or for occult books. And one, one of the occult books that has uh, this in it is Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, 1665. And he has them drawn out there, but he also below that uh, has words that tell what they mean. So the one on the left says, Whoso beareth this sign about him, all spirits shall do him homage. And that's what the treasure digger wants to happen. And the other one says, Whoso beareth this sign about him, let him fear no foe, but fear God. So it is religious. All right. Uh, you're muted, RFM. Oh. I did that on purpose. I just, I was missing Bill so much. I wanted to hear somebody say his, his favorite line. <laughs> I think that's the closest you guys have to a catchphrase. <laughs> I know. You're muted. All right. So when it was put in that Discoveries of Witchcraft book by Reginald Scott, is that something that he thinks of is something that's bad that he's exposing? Or is he, is this more of a how-to book? Oh, uh, Reginald Scott's book is very interesting. I first learned about the book as a magician. <laughs> really? So, yeah, I didn't even look at the occult stuff. I just looked at the uh, beginning part that talks about actual tricks and how to do them. And so what Reginald Scott was trying to do was save the lives of these witches that people wanted to burn or kill or hang or whatever. Um, he was trying to tell say, look, all these things that they've been doing, you think is done by the power of the devil? Well, it's just magic tricks. You don't need to kill these people, you know? And then the other part of the book was uh, has stuff like this in it. This is fascinating. So this is probably a source or something like it for these two wheels in the Holiness of the Lord parchment. Yeah, and there are in other books, uh, other occult books, these exact same wheels. Very good. Why is it you're bringing this up to us? 
So uh, this is jo uh, for Joseph Smith. This is a controls control. This has his uh, sign on it. He uh, conceivably, we don't have any, you know, firsthand documentation on this, but you can conceivably use these in the performance of his role of controlling the spirits, trying to capture the treasures, to keep them from moving through the earth magically away from the diggers. This is what the treasure guardians were supposed to do, guard these treasures to keep them from being um, unearthed. And so you have to like draw a circle around the treasure, keep the spirits out with, with this kind of help and um, get your treasure. Okay, very good. So with if this has, as it does, the sign for Jupiter on this parchment, do you think that's an indication that Joseph Smith himself might have used it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's just a, a, you know, inference. Right. An inference. A reasonable inference. Okay. Okay. Next, should we go on. to the next one? Yes. There we go. Oh, here we are. My friend Mike Quinn again states smith's prayer on the 21st of september 1823 occurred once the moon reached its maximum fullness the previous day and just before the autumnal equinox the full moon was the preferred time for treasure digging but you know it was one time william stafford mentioned the new moon there was other days uh, that they would find significant and it wasn't always exact i don't believe either uh it could be near the time or they still had a uh there's some, some leeway, some, leeway. <laughs> some wiggle room with the spirits yeah okay so uh then pa palmyra minister john a clark reported that joseph smith often acted as a seer for the local treasure seeking company and that in the autumn of 1827 Martin Harris told him it was after one of these night excursions that Joe, while he lay upon his bed, had a remarkable dream of an angel who told him about the gold plates. So, um, is that the earliest? Is, this... is, it, is that the earliest, um, I guess, recollection that we have or of the um, of this dream of Joseph? Is this the first one? RFM, well, uh, Johnny Clark's saying this in 1840 about what he was told in 1827. There are earlier uh, dated accounts than 1840, of course. Okay. <laughs> it's Joseph Smith himself. But, right. um, but he's telling a different version, as we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. He's telling uh, about a remarkable dream, but he's associating. The important thing is, is that He's associating uh, the uh, uh, tre treasure digging preceded his remarkable dream because the remarkable dream is happening on a, on a significant night. And it was a significant night for the treasure diggers and for Joseph Smith to talk to a spirit about another kind of treasure. Very good. Very interesting. Because I know that when I look back at what um, 
D. Michael Quinn wrote and what you've written and collected, there was a lot of treasure digging going on in which Joseph Smith was involved in the 1820s. But when I grew up in the church, and I mean from age 18 when I got baptized and thereafter, what I hear about is not the treasure digging. What I hear about is the angel Moroni appearing to Joseph Smith, beginning on the equinox of 1823, and then every year thereafter until 1827, on the same night, the same equinox, when Joseph Smith finally gets the plates in the autumn of 1827. Yes, and so what we're going to be discussing here is how the story was sanitized from the uh, folk magic elements that when it first when he first told the story, he's coming from a culture in which this seems perfectly normal and natural. As he gets out into uh, the mainstream and starts trying to attract uh, potential converts and uh, he needs to be more appealing to the uh, mainstream Christian folks. Uh, this story doesn't really jive with them so as well as it did in, in his small community and back in New York. So later he starts sanitizing these elements out of his story and making it into a more biblical Christian story, sounding story. Not that he was embarrassed by this, but that it, would attract more uh, converts. Right. And the natural mechanism, I think, for that is the movement of the saints from New York to Ohio, where you live. And now yeah. they're encountering all these disciples of Christ uh, members who have now converted to the church. So there is already this audience early on that may be attracted more to a biblicized kind of church history involving Moroni. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, let's take a closer look at these, uh, at the moon. <laughs> this is, this is your moon for the whole month of September, 1823. So we can look at it. Um, so you see the 22nd. So he starts praying on the 21st, actually. It's not, he didn't go, he went on the day of the 22nd. But his prayer started on the 21st, then he went on the 22nd, and the equinox is actually on the 23rd. So it's close, but not very impressive, right? Right, because now, there's the, what, a 28-day, I think there's a 28-day, um, what am I trying to say, what? Cycle? Cycle, thank you, with the moon, right, from full to full or from any place to any place. And so um, having said that, yeah, sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence, and I sometimes get just a little uh, leery, maybe too strong a word, but I always want to be very careful that things that are being set forward as being landing on a certain day really are and are not just off a day or two because the further off you are, I mean, if it's right on, it could still be a coincidence. But when you start making room for error, then it's even more likely it could be a coincidence. Yeah, so uh, there, I think there's a reason for it being not exact, which we'll I'll talk about in the next slide for 1824. So 1824, uh, he goes back to the hill on the 22nd, but look what happens. Bam! New moon. You see, new moon that William Stafford mentioned and equinox. 
Right on the same day. Right on the same day. And I think this was the key day. And he stuck with the 22nd because of that. Okay. And there was no uh, exact day maybe on the other years. I don't even, well, the next slide, I'll explain a little bit right. more about what I think happened. Um, so we'll take an overview of 1823 to 1827. So you see here we have uh, in the third column over there, uh, September 23rd is the equinox in 1823. And it's 18, it's the 23rd on all the years except for the 24th. Now, uh, so in 1823, you'll see the full moon is on the 20th and the new moon is like way away you know, like September 4th. And in 1824, you'll see that uh, the new moon and the equinox are the same day. Then in 1825, and I have a little asterisk, and down at the bottom, probably did not occur. <laughs> yeah, okay. so you're saying the, the visits on 1825 and 1826 to the hill by Joseph Smith probably did not happen. Right. It, he made the story up later that he went every year. Uh, my reconstruction is that he went in 1823, he was told to come back in 1824, and 1824 failed because he got tricked, and that was the end. It failed, that was the end of the story, and for two years, he didn't really mention it. He knew the plates were up there, he talked about the plates, he took Samuel Lawrence to look at the plates on the hill, but he made no other attempts to try to get them on any certain day until 1827, where on the 21st, it, the equinox is on the 23rd, but uh, on the night of the 21st is the new moon, which is the night he went uh, to the hill in 1827 and took the plates out of the hill. Okay, so there's two strong correlations with the new moon and the equinox, and that's in 1824, and mm -hmm. again in 1827. Now, earlier you yeah. said something about that was significant to Joseph Smith in 1824. What did you mean by that? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> Sorry if I'm getting you ahead of your slides. We'll, get to, well, I think everybody probably already knows, but we'll get to it. Okay. Okay, so um, next slide, we'll look at closer at number 1827 before you move on. So here, here's the new moon. So on the night of the 21st, the new moon, which is goes all night. The 22nd is really from the 22nd to the 23rd. And the 21st new moon is from the 21st to the 22nd. Right? Yeah. So he goes, he goes on the new moon to get the plates. And the equinox is two days later. Yes. But it's the new moon. And it's also okay. on a Sunday, by the way. Is that? Uh, no. The <laughs> equinox. Saturday. Oh, the equinox. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, would that make a difference? Is, would they care? Would Joseph care about that? Like doing something on the Sabbath or not? Or, or not really? That was supposed to be a favorable day for Jupiter. Hmm. Yes. Okay. So, um, the, okay, we'll look at the next one. Okay. Uh, 
this is we're going to talk a little bit about how the story's been sanitized over time and changed and some parts left out uh, conveniently um the first item we'll discuss is the dream of a spirit versus vision of an angel. And uh, Martin Harris reportedly said, Joseph Smith said that he had been visited by the spirit of the almighty in a dream. And after a third visit from the same spirit in a dream, he pretended, he, I mean, he proceeded to the spot, removed the earth and there found the Bible together with the large pair of spectacles. Did you mean to do that? <laughs> no, no. Was that Freudian? Because yeah, you said yeah. he pretended when it's he proceeded to the spot. Okay. So I'm, I have a, so he says the so spirit at the of dating. the Almighty. The, yeah. Well, yeah. So, so does that exactly mean an angel? Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, but the, it's the Rochester gym. Uh on the 5th of September, 1829. That's pretty early, huh? So maybe they don't get exactly right. I mean, I, you know, some newspaper reporter, you're lucky he gets a, a half of it right. <laughs> so, especially when all this is new and no, people don't know what's going on, but he could have said the, a, the spirit sent from God kind of a thing. I don't know what the phrase exactly means. It would be an interesting study of itself. Well, right, because English, in English, thanks for pointing that out, Maven, that it passed me by. The spirit of the Almighty can mean the Almighty Spirit or a spirit sent by the Almighty. Right. I guess that's what was confusing. What, or when God I, himself. Yeah, I, God that's himself. what I would think. The spirit yeah. of the Almighty, I, yeah. I'm almost thinking is God. Yeah. That could be what it means. Could, could they they may have uh, taken it that way something for a future show maybe to dig yeah. into <laughs> and this but next at this uh, early stage nobody's talking about moroni and nephi so right, right. and not um, an angel either i think they're not an angel either um palmar resident abner cole said joe smith jr made a league with the with the spirit who afterwards turned out to be an angel so that's that's pretty close to the truth. That and, is. Oh, and by the way, we were talking so much about the spirit of the Almighty and the Martin Harris first quote from 1829. I did not emphasize that he's talking about it being a visit in a dream. Yeah. From the spirit of the Almighty. Yeah. Right. Uh, this going back to the second one, though, um, making a league with the spirit who afterwards turned out to be an angel. It's it almost sounds like there's some trickery going on or like an angel pretending to be something else is that am i the only one getting that as well, well? so okay. abner cole actually uh, knew a lot about the smith's money diggings and he's the one in the newspaper the palmyra reflector uh he's the one that uh, started publishing the sections of the book of mormon because he was publishing his Palmyra Reflector on the same press as the Book of Mormon. And he started publishing segments of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith uh, confronted him and said, you have to stop. I have a copyright. And they had a little confrontation, almost a fist fight. And, but Abner Cole actually owned Miner's Hill, the Miner's Hill where, where there's a cave. 
and it, the cave has been recently uncovered and uh, you can go see the cave that Joseph Smith Sr. spent so much time digging uh, prior to 1825 um, and Abercole owned that land and Alvin Smith and Willard Chase hired Walters the Magician before Joe Smith was a seer, a prominent seer in the area. They hired Walters the Magician and Walters the Magician was pointing out a place to dig. And then they decided, they fired him and they hired young Joseph Smith to be the seer. And, and Abner Cole also said in the same Palmyra Reflector that the mantle of Walters the Magician fell on young Joseph. Right. And young Joseph, according to Lorenzo Saunders, whose family was the one living on the land, renting from Abner Cole, where the hill was, Lorenzo Saunders said that Joseph looked in his stone and saw a golden throne and one of the uh, Native Americans sitting on it. And um, so they were after this golden throne that was inside this hill. And Joe Smith Sr. would dig day in and day out, according to Lorenzo Saunders. So Abner Cole knows what he's talking about when he talks about Walters, the magician, and this hill, and, and that it was a spirit that he originally talked about. And then later, when it became a religious, uh, when it became known that it was more of a religious enterprise, it all of a sudden became an angel. Right. And that's sort of what I see um, Abner Cole saying is uh, it's June 12th. It's 1831. And I sort yeah. of see him as being his typical uh, facetious self saying yeah, that, he, that Joseph Smith mm -hmm. Jr. made a league with the spirit who afterwards yeah. turned out to be an angel. It was a spirit at first. And then they yeah. changed the language and started describing it as an angel. Is that what you read in that? Yes. Uh, so Abner Cole is being satirical. Okay. That was kind of a style of the time, a political writing style, actually, of the time. And he even wrote it in, you know, called the Book of Pukey, you know, and um, he wrote it in a, a mock King James Version style. Well, that was also um, a style at the time where they would write the chronicles of so-and-so and they would write it, they would write a biblical sounding story, but it was kind of uh, analogous to various political events that were happening at the time. And they would be satirical and make fun of uh, the political scene at the time. And so Ebner Cole is kind of using that style to talk about what Joseph Smith is doing. Mm -hmm. And what so he's you a, you know, once you've read the book of, I was going to say, once you've read the book of Pukey, you have to make a visit to the Golden Throne. Okay, so there's more quotes on this slide. We better read those. Oh yeah. Okay, so, um, fellow money digger Willard Chase claimed Joseph Smith Senior related to me the following story that some years ago a spirit had appeared to Joseph, his son, in a vision. So don't let vision throw you off because Joseph Sr. had dreams that he called visions, <laughs> just like Lehi in the Book of Mormon. All right. Next slide. Next slide. 
this is this one's kind of fun. This is Moroni versus Nephi. I think a lot of uh, the viewers already know about this controversy about uh, was it Moroni or was it Nephi? And Joseph doesn't seem to uh, know what the name of the angel is. Um, what was this an attempt to avoid the charge of necromancy? This is my solution to that problem. Uh, in his official history, Joseph said, he called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me and that his name was Moroni. That's the version uh, I know. Yeah, that's the published version that everybody reads nowadays. But book A1 of the manuscript history reads Nephi, which was published in 1842 without correction in the Times and Seasons. B.H. Roberts changed it to Moroni based on several sources dating both before and after the official history where the angel was named Moroni. So the manuscript history stands out like a sore thumb among all the other sources. So like RFM mentioned in one of our conversations that Joseph Smith just, uh, you know, slip uh, as it had a, a, a memory problem or, or a uh, accidental slip of the tongue kind of a thing. And I said, well, that's possible, but if it was, or if it were, I mean, intentional, <laughs> um, there might be a reason for that. Because this is actually being dictated by Joseph Smith in 1838, correct? Yes. And it's not published until 1842. I know Joseph Smith was busy doing a lot of things, getting arrested, spending, you know, six months in jail, all sorts of things he's busy with. But it does seem interesting that Nephi is said by him, it's written down, nobody apparently corrects him, and he doesn't see fit to correct it, assuming he was aware of the error in the four yeah, years he, between. Yeah. He was it, the editor of the Times and Seasons at the time. Right, so you, you would think he would have had more opportunity to correct this error if he thought it were an error than just when he's talking and making a slip of the lip. Well, he may have overlooked it. And he may have intended to change it, but he didn't. Um, okay. But if it were not a mistake, if it were intentional on the part of Joseph Smith, what do you wean from that, Professor Vogel? <laughs> Would it be an attempt to avoid the charge of necromancy? You talk So unlike Moroni, Nephi would have been among the saints that arose from the dead at Jesus' resurrection. Right, this is so very he, important. He would have had a body. He wouldn't have been talking to a ghost of a dead person. It would right, have been like seeing, seeing Jesus after the resurrection. That's not meant necromancy. Right, all the righteous before Jesus is resurrected are resurrected with Jesus. But yeah. if you're righteous and you're after that point in time, then you're kind of, as a general rule, out of luck until the second coming, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the story. So if that's, it were Moroni, would, so if it were Moroni, it would be a spirit. If it were Nephi, it would be a resurrected being. Is that correct? That's what you would uh, normally assume. Now, uh, so wait, so necromancy—that would be like calling forth. A, I guess involves a body, right? No, I thought I thought that involved. Like, oh, it's okay. So a spirit. 
so he was saying uh, he had changed it to Nephi because he would have been re like resurrected to avoid the yeah, Nephi, or Nephi, do I have that backwards? Yeah, D Nephi died 400 years, you know, before Jesus. So he was among the, the presumably among the, the dead that arose at Jesus's resurrection. Moroni died, I mean, like 600 years for Nephi. Moroni died 400 years after Jesus, right? And can I suggest that if he wasn't translated, but <laughs> if Moroni were a spirit who appeared yeah. to Joseph Smith, according to all the accounts, or at least some of the accounts of Moroni, he's doing things that you would have to have a body to do, like toting plates from one place to another, even as a spirit, correct? Well, if they can move the treasure through the earth, they can do all sorts of things, I guess. But uh, they could, uh, if it were a not a human and it was a treasure guardian, right? then the treasure guardian could ch ch uh, change form. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. Later. Now I'm going to use that on you. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second, Mr. Shapeshifter. But what I'm suggesting is just, for example, the story about, um, oh, I think it's... Uh, is it Martin Harris and going to get Joseph Smith and Oliver Gallery and transporting him in the wagon? And they see the old guy with the white beard along the road walking, and he's got a sack of something over his shoulder, right? That's a well-known story with David Whitmer. Yes. I'm just thinking so, that that person yeah. with the sack over his shoulder, who Joseph Smith identifies as Moroni, probably needed to have a body to carry those plates. Good point. And yes. I, I just want to bring it back again, I because there are some questions in the chat of what necromancy is. Does that involve, would that involve a resurrected being or a spirit? So no. like which one is the one that's avoiding the charge of necromancy? Okay, so necrom the necromancy uh, in my next paragraph there, uh, speaking to the spirits of dead mortals, which is talking to familiar spirits would have opened Joseph Smith up to the charge of necromancy, a practice that was forbidden in the Old Testament. Mm. So the Old Testament doesn't know anything about resurrection, by the way. So um, wizards in the Old Testament talked to the spirits of the dead. Um, and that was forbidden, and they would be put to death in the under Moses' law. So... Yeah, I looked uh, that, that up, Dan. I looked that up. Yeah. There's at least 20 verses in the Old and New Testaments to talk about wizards in conjunction with familiar spirits and those that peep and mutter. You remember that, right? But yes. there's also this uh, passage from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 4 where it's talking about the Nephites. At least that's how the missionaries taught me. It's talking about, and it says about the Nephite nation, right? And thou shalt be brought down and shalt speak out of the ground and thy speech shall be low out of the dust and thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust now that was taught to me and i've certainly heard general authorities though not recently talk about this passage relating to the book of mormon and how when we read it it does strike us as familiar we recognize the spirit of God in it. And that's why it's a familiar spirit because it's familiar to us. And it came out of the ground in the hill Cumorah. So what do you think about that, Dan? 
Uh, the Book of Mormon itself uses that phrase, uh, one that has a familiar spirit. It's, you know, and it tries to use it in that fashion. And uh, but the in the Old Testament, it is the familiar spirit is the spirit of a dead person. Um, speaking out of the dust, that specific passage is uh, that the in the commentaries it usually talks about that um, that Israel will be beaten down and uh, speak from the ground as some as somebody that is a ghost. Right. And the so connection... it changes familiar spirit to the word ghost in oh. some translations. I see. Yeah. The connection that I made, which is a long time after when I'm doing biblical studies, is to much to my shock, I find that when it says familiar spirit in Isaiah 29, 4, it's not talking about that we recognize it. It's talking about a familiar like a, a witch or a wizard would have. And it's out of the ground in the sense that when they went to consult familiar spirits, they would dig holes in the ground because of course that's where they lived. And this is very similar then to the story of the witch of Indor, I think it is, who summons the spirit of Samuel at the request of King Saul. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's why As that I remember. Yeah. That's why that was considered to be so bad because she's summoning a familiar spirit out of the ground. Yeah. So she's doing what she's supposed to do as a witch in old Israel, but this is where it's described and that connection made between familiar spirits being summoned out of the ground and speech coming forth out of the dust. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and another, <laughs> I can hear your heart beating, uh, RFM. Uh, is that me? <laughs> I don't know who it was. What was that noise? I have no idea. <laughs> it it is my my brother just got my uh, sister in law oh. a treadmill upstairs and uh, there. Could you go upstairs uh, and tell him to knock it off for another hour? I'm going hour? to send a text. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. A lot of unusual things happening. I think it, uh, that was the thing that goes bump in the night. Yes. <laughs> I know how that goes. Hey, by the way, I have my own seer stone that I brought tonight. And I keep well, looking at it. I, I can't keep, read it. I keep looking at it. All I see is Spider-Man. What do you see? Do you guys see anything? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I guess that only works for me then. <laughs> okay. So uh, everybody can hear me. Um, the next quote kind of brings us a little closer to what's, what we're thinking of here. Um, Apostle William E. McLellan asserted, uh, Moroni was a disembodied spirit and hence could not appear unto man to give any manifestation. Therefore, the statement of his appearing unto Joseph to reveal the place of the deposit of the plates is false. I have no doubt an angel ministered to Joseph, but it was not Moroni. What does that mean? Do you think he's talking about like an angel of the devil or something? Uh, no, he's just saying disembodied uh, spirits cannot minister to man because it's forbidden in the Old Testament. So oh, he's saying it has to be Nephi. He's not. He's saying it was an angel, and of course, angel to Mormons means something different to mm. Christians and 
the outside non-Mormon Gentile world. Angels are special creations of God, not dead mortals. That's right. Right. And Joseph Smith really is at pains to try and talk about the difference in the beings that can appear to you. There can be evil spirits. There can be the spirits of just men made perfect. And there can be resurrected beings. So yeah. this is something so, that he was very much concerned with, too, it seems. So Joseph Smith more or less re, uh, redefined the word angel to make it fit a more Christian narrative. And you think that if he was intentional about his use of the word Nephi, it was in order to facilitate these problems that arose from having Moroni do all this stuff. Right. So in the next slide, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the timing of the Nephi designation. Uh, Joseph Smith concluded his narrative by explaining that upon his completing the translation, he delivered the plates to the angel and that he has them in his charge until this day, being the second day of May, 1838. Uh, so from that, you learn that the naming of Nephi, therefore, dates to between the 27th of April, which is the date Joseph Smith writes in his journal that they began writing the history of the church in Missouri, and the 2nd of May, which this mentions the 2nd of May, so he's at least got that far in his history by that date, which then makes the Nephi designation date to somewhere around there. But, uh, give me a second here. Um, under the 8th of May, 1838, which is um, Six just days a few later. days. Yeah. Only days after changing the name to, of the angel to Nephi, he records in his journal... Also, in the after part of the day, I spent in answering questions proposed in the Elder's Journal. In one of these answers, he mentioned Moroni being dead and raised again therefrom appeared unto me. Here, mm -hmm. Joseph Smith reverts back to Moroni only days later, but takes pains to explain that the ancient prophet had received a special resurrection, mm. perhaps revealing a concern that had previously led him to experiment with the name Nephi. That's my theory. So when he says Moroni being dead and raised again therefrom, I would take that as meaning that he was resurrected. Yes. What do you think, Maven? So, well, I'm wondering, so was it, it was Moroni first and then Nephi and then back to Moroni? Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. When was it Moroni before, Dan? Well, uh, Oliver Cowdery in his 1834-35 history that Joseph Smith helped him write and published in The Messenger and Advocate in a series of letters to W.W. Phelps in Missouri said that he, and he gives these long quotes from the Bible about the gathering of Israel in the latter days, uh, that the angel supposedly spoke to Joseph Smith on the visit, 1823 visit, he says, and these are the words of Moroni. So can you tell that's us probably the first time the 
that I that I can uh, remember that Joseph Smith and Albert Cowdery mentioned the name of the angel. And can you tell us, though, what happens in Joseph Smith's 1832 history with regard to the angel's name? <laughs> no, I, think of you should, I think you should tell that. Well, I'm going to try here and you may correct me. OK, my okay. understanding from talking to Dan is that the name Moroni does appear in that early history, but it is used in such a way as to make it sound like Moroni is one of the people, of course, who wrote on the plates. He's one of the prophets who wrote on the plates. But the angel who gives him the plates seems to be described as someone different. How did you yeah, <laughs> I guess uh, I feel that I get better about, I guess, struggling to keep all of this straight. But I guess Joseph yeah. couldn't either, so I, I shouldn't blame myself yeah. for <laughs> for trying to keep well, up. So the 1832 history says the angel appeared to uh, Joseph Smith, and when he did, he told him about the record that was written by Moroni and his fathers. So it makes it sound like Moroni's not the angel. <laughs> So, uh, at any rate, um, this is my theory of why there's this problem with the name Moroni uh, Nephi that's kind of been a puzzle for all these years. Well, that's so very interesting. One, oh. But so finally they ended up uh, settling on Moroni, though. <laughs> Yes, they, they settle on Moroni, and it actually appears in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants that was published in September of 1835 uh, in the expansion Joseph Smith made to DNC 27. And he added that Moroni, uh, and uh, mentioned about Moroni with the stick of Ephraim. Okay. So, so it seems like, if you're correct, then Joseph Smith. Uh, tampered or uh, attempted Nephi, perhaps to get him out of these theological problems he's getting in with Moroni. And then after he puts Nephi into the manuscript history in May of 1838, just a few days later, he seems to come up perhaps with a solution by talking about Moroni as being died and resurrected from the dead. Right. Um so we're getting we're moving away from the spirit guardian treasure the treasure spirit guardian we're moving away from that um, by naming it Moroni and it being a uh, you know the dead one of the writers whose spirit appears and then he has a problem with the necromancy um, and people criticizing him for that. He, actually, he was criticized. One of the interesting times he was criticized for that was um, when in 1828, after the death of his firstborn, um, that they named Alvin, by the way, in Harmony, Pennsylvania, he and Emma went to the Methodist class in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and wanted to join the Methodist class. But uh, as Emma's cousin, Joseph Lewis, reported we thought it was a disgrace to the church to have a practicing necromancer, mm. a dealer in enchantments and bleeding ghosts in our class. So bleeding ghosts, uh, bleeding ghosts, you know, ghosts with their throats cut. Because you know the, the story of Captain Kidd is that uh, 
that they you had to kill the, someone over the treasure so they yeah, got we, it right well and they throw the body in when you bury the trunk and the spirit hangs around the body and and scares people away it's menacing you know okay so uh and here we're going to move to another uh element of the story that has been altered uh, to move move the story away from the, the folk magic origins or original context of the story and that is the vision versus seer stone so in his official history smith wrote while he was conversing with me about the plates the vision was open to my mind that i could see the place where the plates were deposited and that so clearly and distinctly that I knew the place again when I visited it. So he has a vision, and he see he knows where the plates are because of that vision. Well, the angel's speaking to him, but that wasn't the earliest account. That was the story in 1838, but uh, Martin Harris knew an earlier version, and so did Willard Chase. So in 1859, Martin Harris reported, Joseph had a stone which was dug from the well of Mason Chase, 24 feet from the surface. It was by means of this stone he first discovered these plates. Boom. So when he went up on the hill and he's trying to find the place where they are, he whips out his stone and hat and locates them. Pardon uh, me while I whip this out. <laughs> uh, okay. Something I would have probably said in the locker room, but um, <laughs> I'll let not, I'll let everybody in here. The audience, I'll let everybody in the audience guess what movie that's from. Uh, Blazing Saddles. Boom! Yes, yes, very good. You already got it. I said I would have said it in the locker room. Anyway, <laughs> um, in 1833, Willard Chase recounted an argument he had with Smith about the stone. He, Joseph Smith, then observed that if it had not been for that stone, which he acknowledged belonged to me, he would have not he would not have obtained the book. You see, this is so interesting because we have two accounts from people who definitely knew Joseph Smith at the time talking about how he found the plates by use of a seer stone by putting it in his hat, I would presume, the normal method. And then we get to the 1838 history, and now there's uh, a vision that he receives. There's no mention of the seer stone being involved in the official church history. So he gets it by a vision, which is certainly more biblical, I think, than using a seer stone. And by the way, Dan and Maven, can I get you to comment on this? Because I think this plays into this. There has long been a tension among those who know that Joseph Smith used a seer stone at one point in his history. And when does he stop using that seer stone? And the question comes up, well, did Joseph Smith use the seer stone for translating something like, oh, the book of Abraham? Or did he use it for receiving subsequent revelations in the 1830s? And then there's always this transitional story that's told about how Joseph Smith finally got to the point where he was familiar enough with the process of receiving revelation that he didn't need a seer stone anymore. And he would just sort of receive it directly from God without this mediation of a rock. Do you think that plays into this at all, Maven or Dan? 
I'm Go thinking, ahead, I mean, that's, that's the apologetic that I've become familiar with as well. As, like that it was, I guess, kind of like a tool in Joseph's early days, I guess, cause he wasn't used to seeing. So he needed this stone, almost like a crutch, I guess, to, you know, before he could really get going on his own. Um, but that has always been, I think, a recent argument made after the fact. So I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like that was in play at this time. But I haven't, I haven't done the research that Dan has <laughs> to know if this was ever something that came up. But that's my understanding: is that it's a modern kind of post hoc uh, rationalization. Right. Well, there's that late. I think it's a late recollection by Orson Pratt about talking to Joseph Smith while he was translating the Book of Abraham. I think. And, you know, he starts glowing. Everybody glows at one time or another in Mormon history, whether it's President Snow or Joseph Smith. And he just got like this beaming face. And um, he's not using his seer stone, right? That's the story. And Orson Pratt says, how come you're not using your seer stone, Joseph? And uh, Joseph says something about, uh, I'm getting the hang of it. Uh, it's probably okay. a little more inspiring than that. But this whole narrative that we get seems to fit with what you're talking about that even now where we're receiving more information about the use of the stone in the 1820s, where does that transition from using the stone to not using the stone anymore? And in other words, acting more like a prophet and less like a treasure seeker. When does that happen? Um, that was a rhetorical I, I don't know if there's actually. a, yeah, okay. I don't know if there's a, yeah. a clean cut, but he had more than one seer stone. And according to David Whitmer, he gave this brown one up to Oliver Cowdery uh, shortly after the organization of the church. Um, but, uh, yeah, there is some uh, indications that he used it during the translation of the Book of Abraham. It used a seer stone, anyway, during that time. All right, very good. So, so that's so it, might, it, it might have been associated just with translating and not with receiving revelations after a while. Yeah. And yet there's that section 130 or 131. I think it's 130 talking about everybody who gets to the celestial kingdom gets their own seer stuff with a new name written in it, which yeah. none know except he receives it. And you look into it and you see things pertaining to a lower kingdom, no, a higher kingdom. And if you look into the earth, which has become a really big seer stone to everyone who inhabits it, that's the celestialized earth. Then you can look into that and see things relating to a lower king. So, well, in which is written a new name. Yes. And so, but so at this period uh, of Joseph Smith's history in the, uh, when he's um, 1823, he's going to the hill and trying to find the plates. He cannot mention the seer stone because he doesn't want to bring the subject of folk magic into his account. Everything's a Urim and Thummim, but he hasn't got the Urim and Thummim yet, so he can't use the Urim and Thummim to find it because the Urim and Thummim's in the box. So um, he has to uh, invent the, the vision of the mind, you know, that's his only way out without mentioning the seer stone. This is very, very interesting. Are we ready to go on to the next Plate, by the way, some people are saying that this picture, this drawing of Joseph Smith with his face in the hat looks like he's throwing up. <laughs> this is this is what they used to call visiting the golden throne. There well, he go. did like to did like to drink. The Technicolor yawn. 
So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Next slide. Okay. I knew that would get you to change okay. this slide. Okay, here My we go. Uh, Joseph was instructed not to take the plates versus physically prevented. Smith's 1832 history reads, I made three attempts to get them, and then being exceedingly frightened, I supposed it had been a dream of vision. See, there's a dream vision mixture mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier. Um, the 1838 uh, history says, I made an attempt to take them out, but was forbidden, like orally, I guess, by the messenger and was again informed that the time for bringing them forth had not yet arrived, neither would it for four years from that time. Can you comment on this, Dan? Because you told me something that I wasn't aware of when we we're talking on the phone earlier. And that is that I'm very accustomed to hearing about the, the four years, right? The five visits over four years, 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27 on the equinox. That is just drilled into my head. But I think you had said that the first time that anybody mentions these yearly uh, meetings or yearly visits by Joseph Smith on the equinox to the hill was Joseph Smith in 1838. And it was right here. Is that correct? Yes, this stands alone, kind of, or it, it, any history, uh, any account that is derived from the 1838 history will mention this also. But it stands alone as mentioning the four successive years of visiting mm -hmm. the hill. And I'll bring that up uh, towards in a few more slides. Okay, so now uh, the next account is the Oliver Cowdery 1835 history, which Smith helped to write. On attempting to take possession of the record, a shock was produced upon his system by an invisible power, which deprived him in a measure of his natural strength. He made another attempt, but was more sensibly shocked than before. He, he had heard of the power of enchantment and a thousand like stories, which held the hidden treasures of the earth and supposed that physical exertion and personal strength was only necessary to enable him to yet obtain the object of his wish. He therefore made a third attempt with an increased exertion when his strength failed him more than at either of the former times. So this is being, this is like very close to sounding like a treasure guardian guarding its treasure. But he's only heard these stories, not participated in spreading them, which is the truth. <laughs> you know, he's only heard of them. Yeah, right. He, he's the one that was spreading these stories. In the 1826 trial record, he, he's, people are testifying that he told them that the treasure had moved away. <laughs> he's, he's giving those stories out himself. He's not, he hasn't just heard about them. He's a dispenser of this stuff. Can I mention something by way of question to you, which is yeah. I'm not the expert on treasure digging in the early 19th century, but... I've heard many stories about how you didn't do the procedure absolutely correctly. You didn't bring the right person. I know you'll get to that in a few slides too, but I've never heard any story about how all you have to do is try harder. Uh, well, I, I haven't either. 
Is this the only one? And is this the only <laughs> account in the 1835 history in the Messenger and Advocate that mentions this particular reason that Joseph Smith was not able to get the plates on the first visit in 1823? Yeah, this is it. This is it. This is um, their waffling. Yeah, that seems very different then. Oh, yeah. I picked the plates up out of the hole in the ground. Then I yeah. thought, oh, I've got to put the big rock back on top so nobody finds the hole in the ground. So I put the plates down and I turn around and put the big mm -hmm. rock back on the hole. I turn around and pick up the plates and they're not there anymore. And the treasure guardian or the spirit or whoever is laughing and pointing and saying, I told you not to take your eyes off the plates. No plates yes, for you. That, Come back when that you is. That right. is part, that is part of the story uh, told by Lucy Smith and others. Uh, and another where, one, it, like where he's changed. shocked and thrown, like what it says, several rods. So this is just like yeah. he, he's just getting weak or he's not able to exert himself enough. This is yeah, the you, one that like threw him. Right. Well, you'll see uh, Willard Chase, his account has that kind of thing in it. Um, so... Um, the next slide will probably give that to us here. Well, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is the Willard Chase one. This is something like a toad. This illustration comes from Mark Elwood's. Uh, yeah. His ongoing uh, illustrated. Uh, the glass novel. looker. Yeah. yeah. The glass looker. And he's continuing on. And I think this picture here comes from his continuing on. But um, so I used it, a little toad. This is actual toad, but the wording is something like a toad, which means it wasn't a toad. It was something like a toad, some supernatural animal-like creature, okay? So, like a uh, Willard Chase, <laughs> yeah. I mean, toads are famous to be familiars, cats, toads. This is a supernatural being. <laughs> that was one of the animals you could have in Harry Potter. Oh, Everyone okay. had to have an animal with them, right? And a toad was one of them, I believe. Toads and rats and cats and owls. Well, toads, toads are usually associated with black magic and mm. Satan and bad things. Yeah, and the rat, well, I think you're referring to as scabbers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to Joseph Smith. Back. And a toad in the box or something like a toad. Yeah. So Willard Chase reported... Uh, a conversation he had with Joseph Smith Sr. in 1827. He took out the book of gold, but fearing someone might discover where he got it, he laid it down at, to place back the top stone as he found it and turned around and hit, to his surprise, there was no book in sight. He again opened the box and in it saw the book and attempted to take it out, but was hindered. He saw in the box something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man and struck him on the side of his head. Not being discouraged but at trifles, he again stooped down and strove to take, uh, take the book when the spirit struck him again and knocked him three or four rods and hurt him prodigiously. Love now, that that's word. not a word you hear. That's not a word you hear very often. No, and this is Willard yeah. Chase from 1833, so an early reminiscence of an 1827 conversation with Joseph Smith Sr. And someone had made a comment about Mark Hoffman. And yes, I know that in retrospect, it's a lot easier to see things. 
But when you compare this account by Willard Chase with Mark Hoffman's forged account, it ends up looking pretty much almost identical, except he changed toad to salamander. Is that about right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, I tried to talk Quinn out of uh, sticking with the salamander thing, but he stuck with the salamander thing, although uh, uh, Hoffman was the salamander so-called sal uh, white salamander letter uh, was proved to be a forgery, but he liked the idea anyway of the salamander because salamander could be associated with a good spirit. But I, you know, I tried to talk him out of just throwing that whole idea out. out. It was, Did uh, you, you mean before anywhere. it was, it was known to be a forgery? No, even afterwards, Quinn persisted in uh, linking uh, the uh, toad-like creature with a salamander. But Joe Smith knows what a salamander is. He didn't say salamander or like a salamander. He said like a toad. Right. But wait, I think I think what RFM is saying is that Hoffman used this story to come up with the salamander. So yes. not what Quinn said, but, but that this was so, Hoffman's inspiration. So Hoffman... Uh, changed it to salamander and Quinn liked the salamander part even though he, it was later shown to be a forgery and he persisted in trying to put the salamander in the hole instead of okay. the toad-like creature uh, even after it was proven to be a forgery Quinn still said oh, I like the idea I think he's he was probably right about the salamander and I would oh, say, okay. well, it's, yeah, even though it was a forge, he was a, he was a forger and the letter was a forgery. He still thought Hoffman was right about the salamander. Interesting. So okay. and I said, I said, uh, forget about the salamander. Just Smith knows what the salamander is. And he didn't say salamander. He said something like a toad. And the thing is, is that later in. Um, uh in the Chase family, Orson Saunders, another younger brother of Orson, of, of Benjamin and Lorenzo Saunders, uh, later in the 19th century said that it was a creature that had like sparkling eyes and it got it puffed up into a bigger creature and, and that knocked um, Joseph Smith off the hill <laughs> into the valley. And um, so I think it was a supernatural creature, something that Joseph had never seen before. Very good. And by the way, I pulled up the Hoffman Salamander letter. I'm not going to read all of it, but so that everybody can understand what I mean when I say that this looks like the story that was borrowed. Let me just go halfway through this. There's, I don't think there's any periods in this. So let me just go here where this is uh, presented as being written by Martin Harris. And he's talking about Joseph Smith Jr. And he says, uh, in the fall of the year 1827, I hear Joseph found a gold Bible. I take Joseph aside and he says, it is true. I found it four years ago with my stone, but only just got it because of the enchantment, the old spirit, because of the enchantment, there should be a period, I think there. The old spirit come to me three times in the same dream and says, dig up the gold. But when I take it up the next morning, the spirit transfigured himself from a white salamander in the bottom of the hole 
and struck me three times and held the treasure and would not let me have it because I lay it down to cover over the hole when the spirit says, do not lay it down. That's the relevant part, I think, of the letter. I like this okay. comment here. Could it have actually been a Ninja Turtle? <laughs> what? Well, if it were, the question is, which one? <laughs> the one that does Kung Fu. Don't they? Um, yeah. It's like Michelangelo, Raphael, and then two other famous uh, Italian painters. Boy, this is really anyway. going over well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know them all off the top of my head. I'm sure the okay. chat will will tell us. They already are. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank goodness. Okay. Give them something to do. We'll go to the next slide. Okay. So return every year versus bring Alvin next year. Alvin. This is, this is the answer to a pre our previous question. And 1824. Why 1824 is so significant. In 1838, Joseph Smith said, the angel told me that I should come to that place precisely in one year from that time and that he would there meet with me and that I should continue to do so until the time should come for obtaining the plates. That's 1838. That's where he starts talking about the yearly visits. Yeah. Uh, Willa Chase said, he then inquired when he could have them. And was answered thus, come one year from this day and bring with you your oldest brother and you shall have them. Okay, can I ask you something? I want to make sure I'm clear on this. Is Willard Chase now, when he's talking about bringing your oldest brother, who is Alvin, is he talking about the 1823 visit, the first visit of Joseph Smith to the Hill, the first meeting with the Spirit? <laughs> um. This is the first meeting, 1823, and Joe Smith is saying, why can't I have the plates? And the treasure guardian says, uh, you have to come in one year, precisely one year, uh, and bring with you your oldest brother, Alvin, uh, and then you shall have them. Was there any reason given by the Spirit as to why he had to bring somebody at all and why it was his oldest brother? No. Okay. Did that run into problems? Yes, we'll get to that. Now, ah. before we move to that, uh, we have another similar quote, because some people, uh, some apologist types might say, oh, that's Willard Chase. He's a money digger. He's trying to, you know, uh, injure Joseph Smith's reputation and all that. Well, we have Joseph Knight Sr., who is an early convert to Joseph Smith, but or Joseph Smith Sr., uh, Joseph Knight Sr. was both a money digger and an early convert of Joseph Smith's. So he's in a good position to know what he's talking about. Uh, he said, Joseph says, when can I have it? The answer was the 22nd day of September next, if you bring the right person with you. Joseph says, who is the right person? The answer was your oldest brother. So two sources. So, two sources, friendly and unfriendly. Um, One of our listeners so, suggested that Joseph was supposed to sacrifice Alvin. <laughs> and another, perhaps not being uh, as funny, 
Uh, Trevor Luke suggests that Alvin was supposed to be the prophet. I've heard that. Yes, that that, that is the early uh, uh, Smith family tradition. Okay, but he wasn't able to do that for some reason. What was that? Well, uh, next slide, we'll find out. <laughs> oh. Ooh, not, not a good, not a good part of the story. Um, Alvin dies. A couple months later. Yeah, this is like 19th of November, 1823. I mean, two months later. I mean, what what's with this angel? <laughs> Doesn't he know? Okay. Is it an I angel mean, it yet? Tricky, maybe, because he because he knew that he wasn't going to be there, so that's why it was his way yeah. of saying you won't get it. Just kind of like God was being tricky when Joseph asked if he was if he would see the second coming, and he was told if he lived to be a certain age, he would. I, I yeah. kind of feel there it's like kind of tricky stuff going on here. Tricky, <laughs> yeah, because the the treasure guardians are tricksters. And I've got to tell you, when you when you mention this story, I do think of David W. Patton. Because he was one of the first apostles, uh, there's a revelation that was received. I think it's still in the Doctrine and Covenants, calling him to go to England with some other apostles. And unfortunately, he got killed yeah, yes, prematurely. Right. Battle of Crooked River, October 25th, 1838. He couldn't make the date. Yeah, well, early Mormonism has a lot of these kind of stories. Okay, this is just the one that this reminds me <laughs> But that's a good of. one. But that is a good one, yes. Yeah, um, bring your oldest brother next year. Wah, wah, he passes away two months later. So somebody was asking in the chat, uh, when did this story come up? Well, I, I believe the story came up not in 1823 necessarily. Some, some people like Quinn thought, oh, because the, the, uh, Alvin was so anxious about the plates and... Uh, when he died, uh, Lucy didn't want to hear any more about the plates because Alvin was would come to their mind every time the plates were mentioned. That this story of bringing Alvin was known um, at the time uh, in 1823, but it's also possible that uh, Justman didn't give this as an excuse until he came back from the hill without the plates in 1824. Then he said, "Oh, I was supposed to bring Alvin." You know, and then we'll see what may, may have occurred because of that situation. What so, might have occurred? <laughs> we'll go to the next slide. See Was Alvin there. still able to give Joseph a hand in getting the plates? <laughs> you'll have to, you'll have to inform us on that one after I read this. Okay. Um, so the, we're now in in 1824. Joseph Smith visits the hill again and. What happens? Willard Chase reported, Joseph Smith went to demand the book and the spirit inquired for his brother and said that he was dead. The spirit then commanded him to come again in just one year, 1825, and bring with him and bring a man with him. On asking who might be the man, he was answered that he would know him when he saw him. Joseph believed that one Samuel T. Lawrence was the man alluded to by the spirit. Not long after this, Joseph altered his mind and said Lawrence was not the right man. Joseph Knight Sr. wrote, He went to the place and the personage appeared and told him he could not have it now, but the 22nd day of September next, he might have the book 
if he brought with him the right person. Joseph says, who is the right person? The answer was, you will know. So, uh, so I know I'm trying not to interrupt. See, this is how I keep myself from interrupting Dan. Oh, I think I just drove him away. No, what I was going to say is that Joseph Knight in his faithful history, right? 1845 says the right person. And Chase from 1833 says the right man, because we know by 1827, the right man is a woman. So Joseph Knight Sr.'s accounts for it ultimately being Emma by making it the right person instead of the right man. That's right. So the next slide. Ooh, disinterment of Alvin's corpse. Disinterment of Alvin's corpse occurred on the 25th of September, 1824, according to this public notice that appeared in the Wayne Sentinel uh, six consecutive times, beginning on the 29th of September, 1824, that says, whereas reports have been industriously put in circulation that my son Alvin had been removed from the place of his internment and dissected. Therefore, for the purpose of ascertaining the truth of such reports, I, with some of my neighbors this morning, repaired to the grave and removing the earth, found the body which had not been disturbed. I that's, told you it was uh, going to be spooky. Right, and that's <laughs> Joseph Smith Sr. who's subscribing his name to this, dated in Palmyra, September 25th, 1824. Yeah. And then he said, this well, method is taken for the purpose of satisfying the minds of those who may have heard the report and of informing those who have put it in circulation that it is earnestly requested that they would shut, no, that they would desist therefrom, and that it is believed by some that they have been stimulated more by a desire to injure the reputation of certain persons than a philanthropy for the peace and welfare of myself and friends. So he actually, Joseph Smith Sr., publishes in the newspaper an account that be, these there are rumors about Alvin being disinterred, and this is September 25th, 1824, so 10 months after Alvin has passed away, and just, what, three days after Joseph Smith would have been to the hill? Right. The second time? Yeah. So there's so all these rumors out there about Alvin, <laughs> and they're so bad that Joseph Smith Sr. feels that he has to prove they're not true and go and disinter his own son with neighbors present to watch and witness. Were there yeah, rumors, so though? Were there. Take it away. Well, change the... Go to the next slide and we'll explore that question a little bit. Um, so the, the fact that these rumors are going around uh, is taken by two historians here as verification of the angel's instruction to bring Alvin. So as the official account, and Lucy's history doesn't either, mention anything about bringing Alvin the requirement. We we have quoted Willard, Willard Chase and uh, Joseph Knight Sr. Uh, mentioning that, uh, that requirement. Now, we seem to have verification in the newspaper at the time that there's a rumor going around about Alvin being exhumed. 
And why would they be? Why would there be a rumor, unless there was some sort of requirement? And this is how it's read by even apologist Richard Anderson, who observed, apparently, word had circulated of Joseph's instructions, and the false rumor was being spread that the Smiths had dug up or would dig up the corpse to fulfill the instructions. Father Smith was evidently pained that the family would be accused of such procedures. And so he took the action necessary to correct the rumor. So the part about Doug had dug up or would dig up, well, the would dig up did happen. <laughs> and so he got dug up. Um, D. Michael Quinn argued that the disinterment of Alvin was real, was a real fear based on instructions in occult books about raising the spirits of the dead with either blood or body parts of the deceased. Because the exact day had passed, Quinn suggested that it you know, wasn't for that occasion, but the next year. He says, if young Joseph left the hill in September 1824, still thinking that his dead brother Alvin was the right person to bring in 1825, that idea ended with Palmyra's uproar over the possibility of desecrating Alvin's body. Maven? So I don't know. I don't know if this really still answers it because yeah. um, I, I mean, so if the town was genuinely worried about this, I guess then there could have been the rumors. But I guess either way, it almost it gives them the opportunity to have a good excuse to actually do it to get any anything from it if that's what they were actually going for. So it's kind of ironic. It yeah, it's, a, that way. it's kind of like it, strange events, but at the very minimum, it verifies that the angel had instructed Alvin's body to be taken. So, and, and yeah. I take it a step further in the next slide. Do you think it, do you think, Dan, that it, that it verifies that the angel said that, that his body was taken or just that the angel had said to bring your brother? In 1823, when he was still alive. Say say that again. Okay, I understood you to say that you think that this confirms the fact that the body was taken. And I was wondering if that's the case or if it just confirms the fact, according to both sides of the spectrum. And by that, I mean Richard L. Anderson from the faithful perspective. D. Michael Quinn, I don't want to say the unfaithful perspective. Let's say um, a different perspective. But they both come to the same idea that the very fact that all these rumors were obviously in circulation such that Joseph Smith Sr. posts this notice about digging up the body does tend to indicate that, yes, Joseph Smith did say that Alvin had to come with him. That the Yes, at the, at the minimum. Yeah. At the minimum, it shows, uh, uh, as Quinn and Anderson are reading it, that Joseph Smith was instructed to bring Alvin, and that was the story in circulation. And if it, if Joseph Smith had said this on his return, you know, from the Hill in 1824, and gave it as the excuse of why he didn't get it, that he was tricked by the uh, treasure guardian, and 
he he therefore cannot get the plates. It's over. It's that's the way I read it. It's over. He's failed. And, right. Um, and there's always these excuses. And I'm starting to get used to the treasure guardians. I feel like I've been out treasure digging myself and been disappointed a number of times. But this does strike me as a very similar treasure guardian trickster spirit kind of thing that is told to Oliver Cowdery in sections eight and nine and eight. First off, you can translate and you don't have to give any thought for what it is that you're going to translate because God will give it to you. Oliver tries to translate. He fails abjectly, and now the Lord tells him, tells him that you misunderstood because you thought I would just give it to you, which is what he says in section eight. Uh, but now instead, you have to study it out in your mind first. In other words, there's a an excuse that frankly sounds implausible to me, given for the failure to find what it is you were promised. In Oliver Cowdery's case, it was the ability to translate. And in these other cases, it's the ability to find the plates or the treasure. And Joseph always it has a, a knack for being able to get around whatever obstacles land in his way. I, I feel like we see this over and over and over. Every time there's something that should have stopped him or, or knocked him off his perch, you know, or, or, or ended Mormonism in the early days, like if we're going back to like the Kirtland Banking Society, there's just, there's always an excuse. There's always a revelation. There's always an answer. That revelation wasn't from God. It was from the devil. There's, there's always some kind of a second chance. I right. think it's right. Right. Yeah. And well, here, so Dan, you're talking you about should... the part that this is 1830, 1824, right? 1824. But what, is this the behavior of an angel? The asking for Alvin's presence and then alvin dying and then not getting the plates because you can't bring alvin to bring somebody else i mean is this what how angels carry on well but it seems like to me since we know what happens in 1827 and at least the witnesses or the people who claim to see plates or whatever it is they see right and that, i know that goes on later into 1829 with the three and the eight witnesses but is there any indication from this that Joseph Smith in 1824, let's say, when he didn't bring his brother and he couldn't get the plates for the second year running, that that was it for him, that he was done? Yeah, right. I believe that's that at, for at that time, that was the end. And uh, like I said, he knew the plates were up there. He took Lawrence up there. Lawrence saw them. And, um, but yeah, as you'll see, I think it's in the next slide. Um, why oh, that first we have to deal with my opinion, my published opinion here. Um, uh, and then we'll get to why I don't think there was a 1825 and 26 visit. So here we, this is, uh, me, uh, I published this, uh, like 20 years ago, almost. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm that old. Um, and this is Joseph Smith, The Making of a Prophet by Dan Vogel. I mention that because some people will just be listening to the audio of this, Dan. Oh, okay. Very good. Uh, questioning Joseph Smith Sr.'s explanation. Sounds a little fishy, maybe. Uh, Joseph Sr.'s explanation for disinterring Alvin's body is questionable because one should have been able to determine 
if the grave had been disturbed in the last few days uh, without exhuming the body. It seems probable, therefore, that Joseph Smith, Joseph Sr. himself may have been the source of the rumor that the story was a ruse to exhume Alvin's body for its use in attempting to get the gold plates. Perhaps Joseph Sr.'s exuberance resurfaced as it had the previous year when he told his son, I would have taken them if I had been in your place. Was he, refer, uh, was he refusing to give up? If so, the incident would demonstrate how thoroughly the father believed his son's claims. So that's just an idea. Well, it's a very <laughs> interesting idea. It's just, it's just an interesting idea. This bottom picture here is just a cemetery that sort of looks like where Alvin's buried. And um, that's what it would look like if somebody had dug up Alvin's grave a few days earlier. You know, you would know like right away. You wouldn't have to dig maybe and harrow up your feelings as a parent. No, so that would be that would be really remarkable. I, I know there's lots of things that surprise me, but this whole idea about just disinterring Alvin's body is grisly and macabre enough. But to think about taking a piece of his body because it was Joseph Smith Sr.'s own published statement that says that the body was still there and it had not been dissected. Why, why is it important to him to say it hadn't been dissected, do you think, Dan? Well, some people think uh, that uh, he uh, they could have been for uh, exhumed for medical purposes. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, it could imply that part like the Quinn is implying in his explanation that the occult books mentioned that you can bring either blood or a piece of the body uh, up to uh, in order to uh, call forth the spirit of that person. You have a piece of their body there and the spirit will come sort of like when you, you cut some, uh, pirate's throat and throws body in the body stays there and the spirit is around the body it doesn't leave it's in the vicinity of the body so that anyway that was in cult books so quinn thought that the rumors uh that the the rumors could if they're not caused by justice Smith senior himself by others who suppose that maybe the smiths did get a piece of his body to fulfill the, the uh, treasure guardian's request. So um, anyway, very good. Just the very thought. Good. Yeah, uh, I think that's an interesting thought, but if, if, if those rumors were actually out there and I'm guessing that they were, but uh, those rumors then would have probably included rumors about taking a part of the body up there. Otherwise, why would Joseph Smith Sr. have been talking about he disinterred Alvin and he had not been dissected? Yes, but here's the question. How does there's only one way for the rest of the neighborhood to have known about this request of the 
treasure guardian. They had to come from the Smiths. Well, that's true. If they didn't say anything, nobody would have been uh, gossiping about it. Well, it sounds like a lot of people had heard about this. I'm just thinking they, they just had to be that that weird family in the neighborhood. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I did put in the ticker. Um, it doesn't look like the normal banner, but I'm not seeing the normal one to put up. So I, I did go ahead and open up the lines. I think we've got about one or two slides left. Um, but one. just to throw that out there, one slide left. So what, what is the call-in number? Is it 662-667-6667? Yes. 662-Mormons. So, yeah, and normally it's on, I just wonder if I, if it is right in front of my eyes and I'm still like missing it somehow, but um, yeah, the, none so of them. So <laughs> if anybody has a question for Dan Vogel and you've been dying to ask him, now's the time. Yes. Okay. Should we go to the, if I, the next if, slide? If I don't know the answer, I'll make it up. Okay. There you Perfect. Go. <laughs> you've been studying Joseph Smith too long. There you go. <laughs> uh, so I see, I see our last slide here. I try to remember. Oh, okay. Oh, no visits in 1825 and 1826. This is finally it. Okay. So, um, in, in the 1820, 1838, I mean, history is alone in mentioning annual visits to the hill. Smith and Cowdery's 1835 history states, from this time, 1823 to September 1827, few occurrences worthy of note transpired. Lucy Smith, who did not mention the 1824 visit without Alvin, makes it clear in her, her history that there was no anticipation connected to 22nd of September 1827. She recounts a story about her son returning from an errand in Manchester village. And as he passed the hill on his return, uh, he was met by the angel who chastised him for being negligent concerning the plates and that the time was now come when the record should be brought forth. She then remarks, it was signified to him when he should make another effort to obtain the plates, which was September 22nd, 1827. But at that this time, he did not make this known to us. So he wasn't making these annual visits that the family anticipated were happening. This explains why Lucy was the only one in the house, including visitors, Joseph Knight Sr. and Josiah Stoll, who knew that Joseph and Emma had gone to the hill. And that was only because she saw them leave. Mm. So uh, that's why I say that, that 1825, 1826, wasn't, uh, there was no continuity in Joseph Smith's story about uh, visiting the hill the same year. He tried to, he brought rebrought up the, the uh, story of the plates, he revived it in order to uh, go and get them and start a new career, religious career instead of money, money digging career. 
But when he told the story in uh, 1838, he connected it with the previous thing, with the later thing, as if it was meant to be all along. And can I just say a couple things? First off, when I look at these four years from 1823 to 1827, and this idea, which I just took for granted when I was a TBM, which is that for some reason, according to Joseph Smith's account, it takes four years that this spirit or angel can appear to him only one night, one night a year. He's apparently unable to give him any communication at any other time. And this is why it takes four years because he's appearing according to 1838 history by Joseph Smith to give him further instructions each year. So the angel can only appear to Joseph Smith on the equinox and only at that location, although he shows up in his bedroom initially. So around that area, but on that same time. And it strikes me that what Joseph Smith seems to be doing is playing for time in a way to explain that actually things have been going on during this four-year period. It's just only been happening once a year. So it seems like he needs that time for some other reason. And I'm getting the sense that this is an excuse to cover what the real reason is. Uh, That could be also, but uh, remember Lucy gives the story of of Joseph Smith sitting around the family. And this is where Alvin was instrumental in gathering the family together and they would sit around Joseph and Joseph would tell the stories about the Nephites and the stories that are contained in this book and the ancient inhabitants of the, the Americas uh, as if he lived among them. He, and so, yeah, he was practicing these stories. He's telling these stories. I believe he was reading the book parts out of the book while the book was still in the hill. Um, so he, he undoubtedly, he was thinking uh, about what he was going to write. But even after he gets the plates from the hill, he he dictates um, the the starts dictating the, the lost 116 page manuscript that we always talk about uh, in February of 1828. Uh, uh, and he loses that and he doesn't dictate anything of substance really until Oliver Cowdery gets there in April of 1829. I mean, that's like a couple of years almost. So yeah, he has plenty of time to think about it. Uh, we do have one we more do. last slide. <laughs> okay. And we have two callers on the line too. So I think they All should right. be able to hear this show. So if you guys are listening, if you just hang tight just a little bit longer. Yeah, here, here's our close up of the night of the 21st to the 22nd of September, 1827, which is the new moon. So this is a significant night for getting treasure. And this on this night lucy reported that she was up late on the night of the 21st of september 1827 when she saw joseph and emma leave the house they took joseph knight senior's horse and wagon knight arrived at the smiths the day before with josiah stoll according to martin harris for the purpose of digging for money (laughs) so uh, in his history knight mentioned that at some point after the 1824 failure, Joseph had looked in his stone and saw that Emma was Alvin's replacement. Convenient. 
and there we kind of nice place to stop even though the story keeps on going but it is really interesting to me dan that um not only has joseph smith's treasure digging excuse me <laughs> okay <laughs> that was yeah he's dicking around that was freudian i apologize <laughs> okay digging <laughs> digging damn it okay <laughs> joseph smith's treasure digging was not restricted to uh the early 1820s it goes on through the end of the 1820s, I think, and maybe even beyond that, and I think that's true. But, but we have an account here from a friendly source, and that was Joseph Knight Sr., correct? Is that the person we're quoting, or is it, who are we quoting? Yeah, from? yeah, Joseph Knight Sr. Okay. Is, is yeah. Okay, so, but, um, but the treasure digging that Joseph Smith appears to be involved in is going on right up to the very night that he gets the plates from the hillside. Yes. And uh, there's a well-known quote from Martin Harris, the 1859 interview that he had with Joel Tiffany mentioned that after he gets the plates, it's after he gets the plates. Uh, the angel told him he must quit the money diggers. Oh, that's a smart angel. I wish he had <laughs> well, said that. Then they all, they're all they're all trying to get the plates. They they think that they have um, some kind of um, interest in the plates because they were a money digging company. They had the money diggers two years previously had dug for the gold plates themselves based on where Lawrence told them where the where the plates were, where Joe Smith showed Lawrence the plates, but. Joe Smith later said that he showed Lawrence the wrong place. He showed Lawrence the, the plates were on the east side, which is the favorite side of the hill to dig on for the money diggers. They dug a hole there looking for the plates, but of course didn't find any plates. And that Joe Smith later in the history that he wrote with uh, Oliver Cowdery uh, said the plates were on the west side in the stone box. So, uh, Lorenzo Saunders is the one that says that the day after Joseph said that he got these plates, he, the money diggers, he, himself included, he, he went up, they went up, and they walked the hill by course looking for any fresh dirt. And the only dirt they found was the, uh, the hole that the money diggers had dug two years previously. Right, so they're doing what you're suggesting Joseph Smith Sr. would have done with Alvin's grave. Well, they dug it. They, yeah, they were uh, persistent and dug it up. Yeah, uh, just looking, looking for fresh for, dirt. Looking Has for somebody been digging here? Looking for fresh dirt. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. That Now I get it. Um, yeah, so uh, we have the money diggers uh, believing what Joseph Smith is saying. They're swallowing it all. It all makes sense to them, and it especially makes sense to one certain money digger that Joseph Smith was primarily interested in convincing, and that was Joseph Smith Sr., his father. Ah. It sounds okay. like he was very convinced if he's digging up his oldest kid. I would say. <laughs> the yeah. ghosts are gr gr growling. Uh, they're grumbling. The ghosts are grumbling over. Very demanding. This, uh, they're Nothing upset, says but... I believe in Mormonism like digging up your dead child. Uh, yeah. 
What there's no Mormonism. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was funny. Okay. Should we go to calls to our, our first callers? Yeah, I would love to do that. Okay, so um, this is someone called before, um, and they introduced themselves as as Mahanrai before. So, and I think that might be like Mahanrai from our chat. So, um, let me get this up here. Okay, is this Mahanrai? Oh no! Hi there. I just want to make sure. Yeah, RFM, uh, Dan, can you guys hear? <laughs> I, I can hear you. Anybody. Can you hear the caller? No. No. It's it seems they cannot hear. Hold on one second. So you guys you guys can't hear? No, we nope. can't hear. Sorry, one second. I'd like to say we're just kidding you, but we're not. <laughs> I I wish. <laughs> um and he's not hearing me either, it seems like. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Shoot. Okay. I'm trying to think what it is that I can do. Um, can you hear him at all? I do hear hold him. The, do you want to just say what your question is? Did, do a hold the phone up to the microphone. Get a phone and put it on the microphone like the professor, the uh, backyard professor. Yes. Those quality <laughs> videos the backyard professor does. <laughs> I, go ahead, Connor, and I'll just, I'll just say what it is. He's going to be calling me any second. Wow, this is um, this is killer radio right here. This is okay. Hang on a second. You keep listening. I got a call here from Carrie. Carrie, 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 how you doing? Okay, yeah, I, I'm glad you're watching the show. Yes, we know about your backyard professor podcast. Yes, they're wonderful. You're the best. Yes, you are. I agree with you 100%. Okay, thanks, Carrie. Love you. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> okay. Um, did you talk to? Did you talk to a backyard professor on the phone? Is that no. what you're saying? No. Okay. I think that's who's. <laughs> it was a commercial. It was I was just kidding. I'm trying to do something to fill this dead air. It was a commercial pretending to be a call. I, yes. <laughs> I just don't know what's happening because I've got my phone is paired with um, with my roadcaster. So it should be coming oh, through. That's man. what we've done before. So I hear it's the backyard professor. And are you guys still not hearing anything? No, I consider this bliss. Um, okay, shoot. I don't I don't know what to do. Hold on, hold on, backyard professor. Hold I'm on, backyard professor. Think, guys. I'm sure he I has don't... a question. Can you put it in three words or less? <laughs> Can you put your question in three words or less? Uh oh. Okay, now I don't hear him at all. Are you there? Okay, can you? He said, I think he's right, said your question in three words or less. Oh, <laughs> that's your question. Are you guys saying he said it's typed in the chat there? Okay, I have someone who's on the phone um, that we could put on while we're waiting for the backyard professor to figure out what three words he wants to. Frame oh, Bill Real. Hi, Bill. No, it's not Bill. No, this is a guy named Trevor. Oh, sorry. 
I almost said no. your last name. Should I okay. say that? It starts with an L. It's just Trevor. No, no, there's no L's here. I'm going to put you on. Okay, let's see how this works. <laughs> okay, you're on speaker and you are on Mormonism Live. Do you have a question for Professor Vogel? I do have a question <laughs> for Professor Vogel. Um, so uh, usually uh, when you talk about uh, Joseph Smith's magical activity, you and treasure digging, you keep the subject focused on folk magic uh, and related topics. But, you know, recently more work has been done on uh, the Freemasonic angle. I'm thinking of the new book by Nick Lachersky and Cheryl Bruno and Joe Swick. And something that's really come up in my mind as I look at the evidence is that every once in a while I see a kind of overlap between the magical and the Freemasonic. And, and I was wondering whether you think those two are synthesized in any way in the Smith practices in, in magic treasure digging or whether you're only interested in the, the magic side of things. Is it all right if we go ahead and allow Dan to take that question? Do you want to stay yeah. on for a follow-up, possibly? Yeah, I'll, just, I'll just hang up. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Trevor. What do you think there, Professor Vogel? Uh, I do not see any Masonic influence uh, dealing with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon or the First Vision or anything. I do not agree with the authors of the new book. I have profound disagreements with uh, trying to force uh, parallels. They're not very good parallels. Uh, the first vision is more like uh, uh, evangelical Christian narratives, which all have a similar pattern. Uh, I do not see any Masonic influence in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, which we're talking about right now. Um, I see Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon being uh, anti-Masonic, not pro-Masonic. I do not see any pro-Masonic elements in the Book of Mormon. Um, I don't, the first inkling that you get of a maybe pro, what you would call a pro-Masonic influence on Mormonism uh, comes uh, with the Danites in Missouri and the then a little bit uh, or I mean the book of Abraham excuse me that's 1835, 1835. that's 1835 uh, and there the you're talking Abraham, about the two different priesthoods the one through uh, Pharaoh who was a great guy and everything but he didn't have the right authority yeah well in, in the uh, alphabet and grammar mentions uh, 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 Masonic signs, basically, uh, that there's a sign for uh, that messengers give. Um, and uh, so who, I, I, there's no like full context to that. It's just a, uh, an interpretation of three signs and messengers that give the sign of grief and distress as uh, Masons know it. So I see that as the first solid uh, influence showing up there in the book of Abraham. Um, and uh, he, of course, Egyptian is very important to Masonry. Um, 
And then with the with the uh, Danites in 1838, they used the uh, kind of um, signs and penalties associated with the secrecy uh, involved. But even there, I think the authors of this new book um, over blow uh, the parallels again, but they're there, but not as many or diverse as they would like to, to make it appear. Uh, and then actually the more fuller embrace of masonry comes in uh, Nauvoo uh, with the temple endowment where Joseph Smith more or less borrows or Mormonizes the Masonic uh, ceremony uh, for his temple endowment. But at the same time, he downgrades masonry and says it's an apostate endowment uh, and that it's a, um, a corrupt or whatever, whatever he says about the priesthood. He has two, there's two main, main statements, but he doesn't, I don't believe in the pure masonry and the spurious masonry uh, explanation. In the Book of Mormon, masonry, the signs of masonry, uh, the signs and the key words are the identifiers of the secret combinations. There's no competing signs and secret words uh, of a pure masonry in the Book of Mormon. It only talks about uh, secret combinations and it's all anti-Masonic rhetoric and it ties in with what's going on with uh the 1828 election of Andrew Jackson. Um, then, um, so he, Joseph Smith is consistent in his view that in the, in the Book of Mormon, there's only uh, secret combinations. In Nauvoo, he doesn't say there's a pure, pure uh, that masonry is pure. He says it's, it's all corrupt, the whole thing. There isn't a, a true masonry and a false masonry and the authors and and Clyde Forsberg uh, in his uh, equal rights book tried to call on um, all George Oliver's 1823 book he doesn't George Oliver doesn't talk about spurious masonry until the second edition of 1840s in some sometime in 1840 and uh there, Joseph Smith doesn't, Oliver doesn't say, he says there's a, a pure masonry and then there's this spurious masonry and the, it's part of the current Masonic institution it is the pure masonry, the corrupt masonry or these mystery cults uh, of the heathens. So in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith isn't like George Oliver at all. He's saying may, all of masonry is, has been corrupted or apostate. They're an apostate endowment. Uh, and so they're, they're not saying, all, George Oliver and Joseph Smith are not saying the same thing. Anyway, that's my take on this new book. Well, I will tell you that um, we're planning on having Cheryl Bruno on the show in two weeks, uh, Dan, so she will be able to give the competing argument on yes. the subject. I think she actually has my she actually has my cell phone. She could call in if she wanted to. I have no idea if she's making comments in the, the comment section. I have to have it turned off so I can focus on 
three things at once. Was there, and now I think we've lost Maven. Maven? It says her device is not connected. <laughs> we could be left to our own devices. Well, we'll have to stay through the whole uh, equinox. The entire night we'll be here. <laughs> Actually, I have to be getting out to a, a nearby Drumlin Hill myself. Just a little Kimura humor there. Wow. Here, maybe I should call Maven and see what the heck's going on. Maybe, because I don't even know if we can stop this show without Maven. We're like the runaway train. <laughs> yes, you're playing the part of John Voight. Let's see. We can't here. even get a call. Get, give your, your cell phone so they can call you. I don't think I'm going to do that publicly. I think that's a great idea, except for one flaw that I've spotted. Okay, hang on a second here, folks. I'm trying to get a hold of Maven. Hi, um, we're trying to end the show and we don't know how. This could be the podcast that never ends. It's like Sherry doing Lamb Chop. There you go. You can start singing. Okay. Are we done?